all across America and around the world. This is Veterans Radio. This is Veterans Radio. Welcome to Veterans Radio. I am Jim Fawson. I'm the officer of the deck today. We've got some great programs for you. I think you'll find very interesting. We always want to remind you, you can find more about Veterans Radio at its Facebook site or by going to veteransradio.net where we're on the web 24-7. You can find a lot of our podcasts there as well. We post new ones every Tuesday, so you can get a new story, a new interview, something you didn't know before by going to veteransradio.net. And before we get started, we want to thank our sponsors. First up, we want to thank National Veteran Business Development Council, nvbdc.org. It was established to certify both service-disabled and veteran-owned businesses. You'll find out how they can help your business by going to nvbdc.org. We want to thank Legal Help for Veterans. Legal Help for Veterans fights for veterans' disability rights all across the nation. You can reach them at 800-693-4800 or on the web at legalhelpforveterans.com. We also want to thank our latest national sponsor, Veteran Lending Council. It is a community dedicated to educating lenders, realtors, and veterans on the VA Home Loan Benefit Program. You can check them out on Facebook and other social media outlets. We want to welcome to Veterans Radio today, Richard Estep, who's an author and is going to talk to us about a book that he wrote, the, the Handy Armed Forces Answer Book. Richard, welcome to Veterans Radio. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Well, we often get to talk to authors, and, and uh, this type of book is uh, unique. Um, you, as a researcher and author, have written a number of these uh, handy answer books, which are just that. They answer a whole bunch of questions, and this one focuses on the armed forces. Tell us how you got involved in this project. Absolutely. Well, I'd, I'd wanted to write for Visible Inc. for a while, and my first book for them was the true crime book called Serial Killers. And they asked me if I had any other interests beyond true crime. And um, History, particularly military history, is one of my great passion subjects. So they were looking for somebody to write 150,000 words about all aspects of the U.S. military, from um, Minutemen with muskets to missiles, lasers and drones. And I, I thought, great, that sounds like heaven. And uh, 18 months later, that's exactly what I delivered. <laughs> it takes a lot of time to write 150,000 words, doesn't it? You know, it does. And the research is, is by far the most um, time-consuming aspect of it. But um, it's a joy to research this kind of stuff. When you do true crime books, you read police reports, autopsy reports, the most stomach-churning stuff. Um, I got to read some great military histories, uh, got to look at some incredible primary source documents, and uh, this was a much more fulfilling subject to write about. Well, you said that this is a lifelong passion, military history, and it comes out in the way the book is put together and the questions that are asked and the questions that are answered. And uh, you and your wife live in the Denver area, but folks mm -hmm. might be thinking, 
That's not a Colorado accent. Uh, Richard, where are you from? Yeah, I'm from back east. Uh, about 4,500 <laughs> miles back east as it goes. Way um, back east. Yeah, way back east, right? Uh, never mind New York. I'm from old York <laughs> in the original colonies. Uh, excuse me, uh, the motherland, Great Britain, UK. And um, I came to the States in 1999 and uh, have, have always been fascinated with its history, especially its military history. Well, and you served in the British Territorial Army in the 90s. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, what that uh, is in um, terms that we'd understand it here in the States? Yeah, absolutely. So the Territorial Army in Britain is essentially our Army Reserve or National Guard. Um, it is weekend weekend soldiers. You know, you, you have your day job Monday to Friday, 9 to 5. And Friday evening, you uh, put on your camo cream and you go out and do infantry section attacks and things like that. And uh, train as a cohesive military unit. And some of the happiest days of my life uh, were spent in the freezing cold rain on, <laughs> on training areas um, with the fellow members of my unit. I, I really, really do miss that, in fact. Well, certainly many of the listeners on Veterans Radio can relate to that. Uh, we all forged great friendships and memories and experiences in our military service. And as we turn to the Handy Armed Forces answer book, um, the layout on this is really interesting because you take each of the branches of service and try to address, um, sometimes there are common issues through all the service, but sometimes they're really different. How did you narrow down, uh, hey, what kind of questions should I answer for somebody as it relates to the Army or the Air Force or the Marines? Well, I think the most challenging part of writing a book like this um, is what do you leave out? It's not what to put in. It's what do you leave out, you know, especially when we're covering hundreds of years and, and many different technologies and, and also, quite frankly, some real heroes. Um, that was the part that I agonized over the most um, because you have men and women of incredible, incredible heroism that have worn the uniform of all of the services. Whose stories do you highlight and whose do you not? So I lost a little bit of sleep over that one in the end. Um, but I had to kind of give a general overview, you know, so what is the army? How is it organized? How many men and women are in uniform? What does it cost to run? Those kinds of facts and figures are, are hallmarks of Visible Inc.'s Handy Answer series. And then I wanted to drill down and look at some of the, the more human factors and some of the historic pivotal points um, that on which U.S. military history has turned. And for folks who maybe haven't uh, run across the Handy Answer book series before, I guess I would describe this as the sort of book that you keep on the coffee table and read read a couple of chapters or read a couple of questions and answers uh, and then put it back down. It's not a read it from the beginning to the end book in a sitting, is it? You're so much classier than I am because I always tell people it's a bathroom book. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you can sit it, sit it in the bathroom, and uh, if you have a couple of minutes on your hand, you can dig into a chapter. And uh, exactly, you're right. It's designed to dip into and delve into. Uh, when I was a boy growing up, uh, I don't know if you had these here in the States, but we used to get a lot of treasury books. Um, and by that, I mean like the boys' treasury of history and the girls' treasury of, you know, um, uh, things like that. And it was designed for you to just educate yourself on a whole range of, of things, like a buffet. This yeah. It's kind of a buffet book. Yeah. And, and the other thing that I think is really uh, key in this book 
is you don't have to be a historian. You don't have to be a military scholar. Um, you know, it's really written in a fashion that anybody can pick it up and get something out of it. Uh, or sharp, I have a vague memory of who this guy is. Let me look up and see what he really did during the war, that sort of thing. And, and I think in that regards, um, when you were writing it, was that your audience a really broad audience as compared to sort of, uh, you know, history buffs? Yeah, I think his, history buffs are, um, the, and I am one myself. So there is definitely a place on every history buffs bookshelf for general overview books. Um, but I also am a big fan of of reaching an audience that perhaps doesn't know as much as they would quite like about not just the history of their military, but how it runs today. Uh, a lot of people don't know, for example, beyond rescuing um, people who are threatened on the seas, what the Coast Guard actually does. They don't know that the Coast Guard uh, perhaps plays a key role um, in fighting smugglers of drugs and human trafficking, you know. Um, and And even if they do, they probably don't know that the earliest Coast Guard uh, lighthouse keepers, uh, a number of them were females who, who behaved in a very heroic way. Well, I, I'm glad you brought up the Coast Guard, often forgotten. But you mm-hmm. answered a question, and I think it's on page 249, that I, I uh, when I saw it, I said, well, I don't know the answer to that at all. And that was like, what's the origin of the racing stripe that's on the Coast Guard uh, ships? And you gave an answer that makes sense to me. Um, well, and, yeah, and you look at a Coast Guard vessel and you you see that stripe and you think, oh, okay, yeah, that's a Coast Guard ship as opposed to a Navy ship. Uh, and, and that was exactly what the Coast Guard was trying to achieve. It was it was branding and it didn't exist um, before 1967. Yeah, the, again, that's the you know one paragraph answer to a question that you kind of, yeah, yeah, that's stuck in my head somewhere. I don't really know the answer to that. Um, on the Air Force, um, I think it's page uh, 329, you have a discussion on one of my favorite uh, airframes called the Warthogs. And, oh, yeah. and you hear the people, even today, they talk about Warthogs. And, and, and I think if you're uninitiated, you don't know what they're talking about. And this is the kind of book that you pick up and you go, yeah, I've heard them use that term on the news or something, but what are they talking about? Well, you've answered that question, haven't you, Richard? Absolutely. I mean, I love the Warthog or the Thunderbolt, as it's, I guess, more properly called, but everybody I know calls it the Warthog. Uh, and some people used to call it the Devil's Cross because of the shape it made. I guess that depends on which side you're on. But yeah, that is um, the best friend the infantry soldier has in combat quite often essentially a whole aircraft built around a big 30 mil rotary cannon um the pilot sits in this armored bathtub and the number of, of smart munitions maverick missiles ordnance that hang on the wings of this thing it is a flying artillery support battalion essentially uh, and i just adore the a10 i saw one recently flying at the colorado air show in fact this past summer well, and every now and again, they say, well, we're going to get, because it's an old, old air from this, and we're going to get rid of the A-10 Warthog, yep. and all kinds of people come to its defense, and it may be old, uh, but mm-hmm. man, it does the job for which it's designed, and, and again, I think that's the kind yeah. of uh, and, uh, I question mean, you answer. B, look at the B-52 in that same light, you know, and the reason these airframes exist after decades, now we're looking at over half a century, in some cases, is that they do the job they were built for so well. Um, there's no need to go back to the drawing board for something like the B-52. 
um, or, or the A10 or the C130, you know? No, absolutely. And, and uh, a, a lot of these uh, uh, pieces of equipment, if you will, um, that the military use, uh, their names become kind of iconic, but you may have lost, maybe you saw it in, mentioned in a movie or in a book, and one of those is the Higgins boat, um, which uh, comes up into a question you posed on page 151, was, which was, what was that boat that won World War II? And well, you, you uh, talk yeah. about that story, and I think it's a, a, a classic example of, I've heard Higgins boats before, but I don't really remember what the hell they're tied to. Tell us yeah, about you that. Could, you, you could easily, if, if you think about it for a minute, and you would ask someone, what was the, the ship or boat type that won World War II? Most people are going to say, obviously, the aircraft carrier. You can make a case for it being the destroyer, which kept the transatlantic uh, supply lanes open, you know, um, uh, which prevented so many, firstly, prevented Britain from starving. Um, you can make a case for almost any vessel type, but the Higgins boat was so ubiquitous because it served in every theater. And if, if your listeners aren't familiar with it, when you see the, the guys coming ashore at the beginning of Saving Private Ryan, the landing craft, you're looking at Higgins boats. And, and these things were uh, originally designed, um, actually, to kind of go through the bayou. Um, and it, it was soon realized that we needed a way to get our troops ashore onto hostile beaches. Um, and we need a way that we can get them, uh, a lot of men, onto the beach real quick, drop a ramp, and have them deploy. And the Higgins boats did that so well. The design was was almost perfect. So they served in every single um, amphibious operation of the war. They served in all theaters, Normandy, North Africa, you name it, the Higgins boat was there. And uh, they, do, they do what they do so well. And this is one of those examples where you get a, the the answer gives you the snippet of what the Higgins boat's about, but you, you know it, it, you may want to, and I think this is what you're trying to do in this in uh, this book is you may then want to go uh, find out some more information. What do you mean this was out of the bayou in Louisiana? What is this Higgins boat company? And it's which obviously has a very rich history, uh, very interesting, a different part of the country, right, than than uh, other boat building areas. So uh, I think you've done a great job of taking some of this hardware, some of this equipment uh, throughout the book for each of the services and, and whetting our appetite to, to learn a little more. And I think that was probably your goal, wasn't it? It was, and thank you. I do hope so. I did put a suggested reading list in the book, but the truth is it could be a thousand titles long. I have an extensive um, military history library at home. I read this stuff for pleasure. And I really do hope that people delve into this book and it fires their imagination to go read something a little more in depth, a little more specific about the subject that, that captures their imagination. And, and I don't want to give the wrong impression, and we're talking to uh, Richard Essop, who wrote the Handy Armed Forces Answer book. And Richard, I don't want to give the impression that this book is just all about dry statistics and hardware and equipment. You've got a lot of stories about a lot of men and women in here who are really fascinating in their own right. Uh, do you have any favorites that you got to talk about? You know, it's, it's so difficult to talk about just one or two because then I leave out the other <laughs> branches of the service, right? But the, the, the Marines definitely would um, – there, there were so many colorful Marines, men like Chesty Puller, you know, 
Uh, heroes like John Bazalone, who anybody that saw the miniseries on HBO, The Pacific, uh, will be familiar with John Bazalone. Um, Marines like Smedley Butler, you know. But I also look at people like the the first um, uh, air aces, you know, like Eddie Rickenbacker. Um, when flying was in its infancy, uh, the men who essentially um, went out on a wing and a prayer to, to deal with German aces, uh, or in the Coast Guard, young men like Seaman William Flores, um, who most Americans have sadly never never heard of, um, but he was very heroically lost his life um, in an incident in 1980 in uh, Texas when uh, a critically injured ship sunk and he was getting his fellow um, Coast Guard uh, sailors out. Um, so I love the fact that I was able to highlight some of these brave men and women and uh, bring them a little more visibility, you know? Oh, absolutely. Um, I do think that uh, there are um, just some really interesting uh, fellows uh, talked about but you also have some women in here, and so some of them talk about the the nurses. Can you can you give us some insight into uh, some of those questions that you wanted to answer in the book? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I wanted to uh, to look at when women were first allowed to wear uniforms across the various services in, in what capacity, and it is fairly well known that female nurses have been with us uh, as almost as long as there has been a, a military. You know. Um, in Britain, we we talk of Florence Nightingale, the infamous Lady of the Lamp, who's well known as, as being one of the prime figures in, in nursing. Um, but uh, here in the U.S., we have females serving throughout the Coast Guard and the Navy in the reserves through World War II. Uh, you know, SPARS, which was um, basically the Coast Guard's female reserve. Uh, women have worn Marines uniforms also. And I wanted to look at when they were admitted to the academies, to West Point, to Annapolis, uh, and able to hold commissions. Um, so Those, looking at the role that... Yeah, I think, again, that, that sort of shows this is really cutting across the board. I think there are issues, questions that would be of interest to anybody picking this up and reading it. You do a whole mm -hmm. section on special operations forces. You do a section on... Um, uh, Space Force, uh, that's how up-to-date this is. Those had to be a little interesting to work on because of the uh, evolving and developing areas. I, I would imagine that made it a, a, a challenge for a researcher and an author like you. Definitely Space, Space Force was the biggest challenge, I think, because it is such a new service. And it is still figuring out its identity and its customs and how it's going to do things. So when I look at um, the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, the Marines, when I start looking at the, uh, the Coast Guard, you know, you have hundreds of years of traditions and um, things like, for example, the red stripe, the blood stripe that the Marines wear on their pants, their dress uniform. Um, a lot of people, including some Marines I talk to, actually believe the story that's going around that that stems from um, the blood that the Marines shed um uh, at the siege of Chapultepec turns out that's not the case um and nobody uh, in the core knows quite where that story originates you know so the the more senior services provided more rich fodder for that when it comes to things like space force it was a little more tricky um special operations forces of course don't want you to know too much about what they do that's that's anathema to their mission but there are still some very interesting um facts out there 
about how our special warriors um, operate. And uh, even though they're a relatively relatively new organized concept, we've had special ops forces since Rogers Rangers, you know. And, and uh, you actually close that section out uh, with a question about does the Air Force have special operation forces on page 408? And it and mm-hmm. it does. It's a sm- very small group. It doesn't get nearly the publicity everybody else gets. But I'm glad you uh, you you tackled that question as well. Thank you. And I um, prob- probably the the page I find most disappointing in this book is 415. Uh, bearing in mind that I finished this um, like a year ago, something like that. Because um, publishing, you know, there's always a lag time. But 415, I- I'd said. Uh, is a war with Russia likely? Yes, it is. Putin has his eye on Ukraine, and a uh, few defense analysts would be surprised to see a Russian invasion. Yeah, that was. Uh, I've never, <laughs> yeah, I've never been so unhappy to be proved right. Yeah, right on the money. And and I was going to comment uh, that uh, you you take on the hard hard question, not looking backwards uh, with the history and questions and answers, but looking forward about the future of the U.S. military. And that's uh, one of the statements in there is is on uh, war with Russia. So it uh, it really, as I say, provides a lot of information for a lot of folks. What did you find most challenging in putting it together, uh, Richard? Well, again, I think, Jim, it's, it's, it's what, I, what I had to leave out. This I could have written 10 books in a series um, in this same vein just because it's such a rich field of research, you know. Um, I, I very much enjoyed the minutiae, the trivia, uh, how Marines came to be nicknamed Devil Dogs, you know, uh, how the how the Coast Guard came to be a formalized service, how the Army Air Force became the U.S. Air Force and why. Well, we're not going to so, spoil this for folks, but when you read about how did they get nicknamed Devil Dog, the next question is, why do you call them jarheads? So it's a, right. it's a great juxtaposition of these two terms that are common throughout uh, the language of Devil Dogs and jarheads. But how many people really know where that all started from? And that's where the the Handy Armed Forces Answer Book by Richard Estep really kind of helps you know more than you did when you sat down, whether it was on your easy chair or somewhere else on the throne, as uh, suggested by Richard. <laughs> the publisher is going to love me for suggesting that. But, uh... <laughs> he is. <laughs> Well, uh, let's tell folks where they can uh, find uh, this book if uh, they're interested in. And I think this would be a great present for, you know, dad uh, or uncle or grandfather who served, who thinks he knows it all, but maybe his memory's a little rusty. I think this is a great kind of book to give to somebody like that who uh, otherwise has everything he needs. So where, where do you find this? Thank you. You can find this at the traditional brick-and-mortar bookstores, uh, Barnes & Noble here in the States or anywhere of that nature. And, of course, you can find it at uh, online retailers also. And as mentioned, the publisher is visibleinkpress.com. Um, I'm, I'm sure they can direct you to the right spot. And they have all sorts of other handy answer books. Uh, Richard's written one and working on another one for World War II. We look forward to when that comes out. Well-researched, well-documented. You really did a great job, and thanks for spending a little time with Veterans Radio today. Oh, thank you, and thank you to all of your listeners, particularly those who have worn the uniform. And I want to thank everybody for listening to Veterans Radio today. I am Jim Fawson. It's been a pleasure to be your host. I'm a veterans disability lawyer at Legal Help for Veterans, and you can reach us at 800-693-4800 
or LegalHelpForVeterans.com on the web. You can follow Veterans Radio on Facebook and listen to its podcasts and Internet radio shows by going to VeteransRadio.net. And until next time, you are dismissed. If you have a VA claim denied by the Board of Veterans' Appeals, contact Legal Help for Veterans at 1-800-693-4800. They're experts in handling cases before the U.S. Court of Appeals for Veterans' Claims. Their number again, 1-800-693-4800. We again want to thank our national sponsors, the National Veterans Business Development Council, NVBDC.org, VA Ann Arbor Health Care System, the Vietnam Veterans of America, Charles S. Kettles Chapter, Ann Arbor, Michigan. VFW Graf O'Hara Post 423 in Ann Arbor. And the American Legion Press Corn Post 46, also in Ann Arbor. And the Veterans Lending Council, which advises lenders, realtors, buyers about VA Home Loan Program, and you can find them on Facebook. We appreciate all your support. You can go to veteransradio.net, click on the sponsor level, and continue to support keeping Veterans Radio on the air. And until next time, you are dismissed. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.